three would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? Any other time in the week I can find it, but on Sunday, it's not... Thank you very much. Oh, yes. Excellent. Okay, so we, this, is the, uh, this is the book. I called it a book, which is actually a letter, actually. A letter that Paul wrote to church. Galatian Christians, those young Galatian Christians. And we've been, we've been looking at the uh, whole idea of one gospel. Um, it could be quite an arrogant thing in our world today. It could be considered arrogant if you say what I believe and the way that I go is the right way. It'd also be very dangerous in other parts of the world if you say Jesus Christ is the only way. It could be very arrogant, could be very dangerous. We're a Christian church this morning, and I just take that responsibility to say to you that I believe as a person there's only one way. It's not something you can force on anybody. But um, there has to be a history of that and has to be personal experience of that. It's not something you can just shoot your mouth off and say, yeah, Jesus is the only way. There has to be approving of that. To know within yourself, within your gut, that you've found what you've been looking for all your life, as it were, or whatever. So we're looking at one gospel. Um, We're looking at the struggle to... And the church is maintaining that and to deal with false teaching uh, within the context of church. And um, it's not only a thing that was experienced in those early days of the church, but it's an ongoing thing the whole time. Um, There's three elders here. And in, in the context of our leadership, we would like to say that we want to preach what is biblical and right. So I want to say to you, you have a right to challenge that. You don't have to take everything we say because if we know from the Bible what God says is right and we say it wrong, then you have the right to challenge that. And we have the right to be challenged. And in humility, we'll take that. Um, we're all constantly looking out and looking at what might be considered to be false teaching and there is a lot of false teaching about. Even within, the, within Christendom, within so-called Christian churches, there is an element of false teaching and we could be just the same here if we're not careful we just have to keep our eye on what's going on and to know that we have a gospel that honors God and actually brings the blessing from God to us as he intended Paul said in one of his other letters there's one Lord one faith one baptism, one God and Father of all. We rehearse that because we believe it to be biblical. I just want to commend that to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One God and Father of all. We live in a multi-faith world and a country that defends the principle of multi-faith. Tolerance within our world allows that to be, and of course God has given man free will 
in which we're allowed to determine that by which we will live and die. So we're all here with a free choice this morning. We're all here to determine what is right and wrong, what is biblical and what, and what is right. Some Christians actually say, oh, well, I believe what's right for me. And that can be a little bit dangerous. Billy Graham had the habit of always saying, the Bible says. And that's a good place to start. In fact, I believe it's the place of authority, isn't it? We can only say, hopefully, we can only say, and hopefully I will say this morning, those things, what the Bible says. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's amazing, isn't it? And I hope that, I'm not saying with a sense of arrogance this morning, but I say it out of historic, biblical historical evidence and my own personal testimony to know Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Did I hear an amen? Okay. You're not quiet, really, dear, are you? He says it at the right time. Amen. Jesus Christ is, is Lord of all. Singular and unique gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's just what I remind us this series is all about, looking at one gospel. And... Um, If it does come across as a sense of arrogance, many body, that's not a right play to be. Because the grace of God is upon those who know Jesus and then the power of his love and the power of his grace to be what we should be. So the Galatian church um, was experiencing the effect of false teachers. And uh, I just want to read where we are with this in, in chapter 3. And... Uh, Verse 1, I'd said two weeks ago that you know, I had my sledgehammer here. When there's a nut to be broken, use a sledgehammer to do it. And um, Paul is taking his authority as an apostle and dealing with the false teaching was then. Galatians 1, Galatians 3 verse 1, you foolish Galatians. It was not a good thing for a Jew to call anybody a fool. It was out of context with their general um, uh, life in society. And um, it was a point where God had said, you know, you shouldn't call anybody a fool because it was God's responsibility to actually determine which was foolish and which wasn't. And yet Paul takes this word of authority and he says, in this case, brothers, you're foolish. Because you've listened to something which is actually not going to help you. It's going to lead you astray. And actually, in fact, it'll have an effect on your lives which will change them, not for the good. But it will be a downhill road for you if you do take this on. You take on the rules and the regulations that faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done is the, the biblical authority. And that's what it's, the gospel is all about. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What that's really saying is, when you believed in Jesus Christ, it was as if you was there when he was crucified, and it's almost, it hit you in the face when you heard about it. It hit you in the face that what God was doing in Jesus 
was a day that truth came to your souls and it changed your lives. To you, he was clearly portrayed as crucified. We cannot get away from the fact that Jesus' life was the best life that was ever lived. It was a perfect life, but if it had been a life without him being crucified, there would have been no life, no hope in the gospel for us. You foolish Galatians, you began with him where Jesus was crucified. He was clearly betrayed before your eyes as crucified. Was our coming to faith in Jesus Christ like that? It was a time when we were hit in the face with the truth of the gospel, that this was the one unique way that God was going to redeem the world and make his grace known to the people. I think we, we sort of live in a society and... Um, it was the guy from Maidstone, can't remember his name now, but he'd, he'd done the um, demographics for Herne Bay and, and said there's about 80,000 people in Herne Bay who call themselves Christian. We're looking at difference this morning between faith and living by faith or living faith. There are many faiths. As it were, we live in that multi-faith society. But we're looking at one gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 2. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much? For nothing, if it really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, non-Jews, us here today, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So not only are we living in a multi-faith society, we're living in a society when there are different interpretations of biblical writings from the Scriptures and from the New Testament. 
Accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, people different in their interpretation and understanding. Understanding within a church context, even when applying the disciplines of connected with Bible study, exegesis and hermeneutics, people can arrive at different ideas. Theologians arrive at different ideas. Countless individuals where their, I think, it is, bring a different flavour to Christianity and to faiths. But in the end, it's not what I think, it's what God says. That's the principle of believing in Jesus Christ. So what do we do about this? It's a bit like multi-choice exam papers. If you notice how the truth becomes confused, well, some people haven't done multi-choice exam papers, but uh, you're given a series of possible answers and you have to choose the right one. And you might go to an exam saying, I know my subject well. And when you come to it and the right answer is placed along other possible answers, the truth becomes confused. There's no clear definition of the truth to you at that point, or that's how it can become sometimes. And sometimes it's like that with Christianity. There's no clear definition of the truth when placed along other possibilities or other beliefs. So what do we do about this? Is our faith like that? I'm not really clear about what I believe. I know I believe in something... I know there's a God out there somewhere. I know there's a person called Jesus. I've heard of the Holy Spirit. What is it? And sometimes the faith is a so-called faith and not a faith with a clear definition. And so when we come to the one true gospel, we need to be in a place where we believe it with a clear definition of what God says and what the Bible says. Do we have that clear definition? And as I talk to people in the context of my work, I find very often there is no clear definition of people with a faith do believe. So Paul's about a clear definition of where we are. What is the true answer placed alongside others? It doesn't seem to make sense, and it can be quite confusing. Is there an answer to this? Here's a little bit of an answer. Jesus said, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. The person who is willing listener to Jesus and wants to accept what he says will find the truth which leads to faith and discipleship. Like Steve was saying, as we kicked off this series, Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus said these words, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. It's saying, if I really want to know about Jesus Christ, if I really want to believe in something which is meaningful and something which ultimately gives me the purpose that God intends me to have, it needs to begin with Jesus Hearing his words, Jesus said, if any man has ears to hear, and we have ears to hear, what it says, let him hear. Let him hear. Sometimes it goes as far as listening, but not hearing. Listening and not hearing. 
You're all listeners here this morning. Maybe you're not hearing because there are some bits which are difficult to understand, and that's not a problem. Sometimes we, we can't hear because we, we're distracted. And Jesus told a parable about that. Sometimes we don't hear because of the activity of Satan, who takes away truth when it's being presented to us. That's in the parable that Jesus told as well. And snatch it away. But if someone with the intention to hear what God has to say, it says, let him hear what God says. Quite simple, isn't it, really? If you want to hear what God says, listen to what he's saying. And you will hear what he's saying. And he will speak to you. The force of that comes out of the Bible. I talked about exegesis and human, human hermeneutics as ways of studying the Bible and explaining it and unpacking what's there and the truth of it and what it is. There is another way of understanding the Bible and, uh, and coming towards faith in Jesus Christ and having that definition about the truth, and that's consistency. The Bible is its own interpreter. Its own interpreter. If we know our Bibles well and we're intent on hearing what God has to say to us, you will find an unfolding of truth coming to your spirit. Where you say, well, I read that the other day. That ties up with that. And you will find that the historical evidence of the Bible is better than what you thought it was. It's truer than what you ever thought it was. And it makes more sense than you would ever think it would say. Because consistency within Scripture itself, the Bible is its own interpreter. If we've not got the time or the place to actually get into the Bible and God's Word and to study it and to understand it, these things may be a little far away from us. And there may be no clear definition of what God intends. So there are different interpretations, even with all the study and all the theologians in the world, that we can still arrive at different ideas. I think the variety of churches in our world would tell us that's what the case is. Sort of division where truth is concerned. Consistency. So you come to the point where faith is purely a reference point for people a reference point and not a reason for what I do. I think um, people, when they have to fill in hospital forms, and have you had to fill in a hospital form, Janet, yet? Yeah. Janet's having her operation on 30, and we're going to pray with her afterwards. I think it's somewhere on there it has a place religion. And sometimes that's a very difficult question to answer. I think in some cases it's left blank, but of course they need to know that. But it's purely a reference point at that stage, not a clear definition of what it is. And there are other instances in life. Who shall I get to bury me? What service shall I have at the end? And all the rest of it. Some people don't have a religious type service anymore. It's just sort of celebration of the songs that they knew in their lives and things like that. No reference point. A reference point, but no clear definition. What is your faith? 
Is it just a reference point this morning or a clear definition of who you are in God and the relationship that you have with him? This is the underlying message of Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you go down that road, you will lose it all. That was probably the worst scenario. If you go with rules and regulations and you take on the Jewish customs and the law, you'll find it's a downward trend. You'll find the hope, the peace, the joy, and the blessings of knowing Jesus Christ will be lost to you. People with a faith purely as a reference point, and I just give this as an example, not as a point of doctrine, struggle with things in their lives. And it can be like this. The Bible calls it the warring of the soul. It's when my real self is struggling after the truth and I can't find it really and I can't put it into the context of my life and God and what he's done. The warring of the soul. And it might come across like this. Overly self-defensive. Overly self-defensive. Within the context of our life, I think you will find that you probably know someone who's overly self-defensive. You might say something to them and they shoot up in the air and you don't know where you are with them. That's not right, what you said. You take that back. You take that back. What do you do to take it back? That's what I want to know. Self-justifying. Well, it's me who's in the right and they're in the wrong. Self-justifying. A stubbornness which permits untold instances that tend to hurt relationships rather than build them. I've been working in a house this week where the wife has come to the forefront and she just keeps on putting her husband down to me. I don't take any notice of it. But what do we do? Do we admire the people we're close to? Or do we find that a difficult concept? Do we find that difficult? And sometimes a spirit of condemnation can creep in and hold a grudge for many days. Despising someone close to you. That's very easy to do. You know those little irritating things when you're in a relationship? It could be either a marriage, a friendship, or it could be within the work context. Little things that irritate you tend to lead to you despising other people. That can so easily happen. I've seen it so many times. But if we're a Christian and we find these things happening, and there seems to be no clear definition within that, maybe we'd say, well... What is my faith? How real is it? How important is it to me? Our subject this morning is sort of living by faith. Well, living faith. When I thought about it, originally Steve had said, put on, the, on, on, on our calendar living by faith, and then it was changed to living by faith. And I thought, oh, what's the difference? I don't think there's really any difference. Is my faith living? Does it have true meaning to it? The things I said earlier are not necessarily a rule of thumb. 
But in the context of today's message, you may be saying, well, those, that's me. What you've said, that's me. Where am I going astray? And it's Jesus who can make the difference. It's Jesus who can make the difference. Living faith. Living faith must be simply simple. And Steve mentioned this last week, the simplicity of faith. And faith can be so complex. We should be looking in the mirror. The Spirit of God searches the deep things of God. There's a complexity about what we believe that we can't really fathom the depths of because we can't fathom God. He remains the one who knows all. It's like this. If a child has to wait until he or she is capable of grasping the truth theologically, the vital truth about God's way of salvation through the cross can be simply simple. Does a child have to wait until they understand all the complexity of what God has done for them? No. I don't know what age you came to faith in Jesus Christ here. I came when I was eight. There's only one thing I knew when I was eight, and that was Jesus died for me. I didn't understand very much, very little more than that at eight years of age. I'm not an intellectual, and to me understanding was, I didn't understand lots of things. A lot of kids understand these things earlier these days, which is good. But it must be simple so that it can be grasped. And this, what God has provided for us through Jesus is simply simple. It was termed in one of the stories of the Old Testament, and Jesus referred to it later in his life, look and live. When we look at the cross, we can understand it in a moment. It can come to us, all that Jesus did for us. It can come in a moment. It can come simply. But it, like I said earlier, Paul reminded, Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed before you as crucified. And that's what hit me as an eight-year-old. Jesus was crucified for me. Understanding resurrection came later. My little grandson of five years of age, coming out of church with Dad a few Sundays ago, Dad, he said, you know that prayer we was asked to pray? He says, I prayed it. Simply simple. It must remain like that, but it must also remain something we can't fathom the depths of. The complexity and the simplicity. Simply simple. Look and live. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul reminded Timothy of this. How from infancy... You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as adults, we muck it up, and we make it so difficult. And Jesus says, simply come. Come to me. It is simple like that, but it's also profoundly deep. Living faith as opposed to faith. That's what I should look at now. And I'll look at three evidences 
or characteristics of living faith. And the first one, if you look, we read as we went through Galatians 3 just a moment ago, I would like to learn, Paul, just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Did you receive the Spirit by obeying the law or believing what you heard? When we come to Jesus Christ as Saviour and we accept the salvation that he offers to us, it actually brings us into a greater experience than just believing facts. Now, if we understand something about God and we understand something about Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, with our mind, we believe it. And we actually assent to that. And we do something because we believed it to be true. That is the essential point. We believe in Jesus. Our mind accepts it. But there's more than facts more than facts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul highlights it here. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? When uh, the, the leaders and elders went down to Samaria, where Philip had been preaching, people had believed in Jesus Christ and they'd been baptised and they came with the question, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Since you believed. I think this is very relevant to our culture and country here because we live in a so-called Christian country where many people say they have a so-called faith, but it's not defined specifically. And sometimes it's because we do not give people the opportunity to know where they have come to They've come to by the Spirit of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit working with us. He's, like, he's sort of thrown an invisible lasso around your neck and gradually pulling you in because you want to come. If you don't want to come, he won't pull. But the Holy Spirit's been working with us to draw us to this wonderful love and grace and full salvation because we want it. And because we want it, he draws us. He draws us to him. We may come a step, maybe just for a little bit of a game here. You take an inch, the Holy Spirit will move an inch. You say, well, I want to take a big jump today. I'll jump over there, and he jumps towards you. And it's sort of God working with us. His reasoning with us and saying, I'm drawing you, you're coming, because God is not intentional, intentional about forcing anybody. He wants us to know his love in doing what he's doing. He wants us to know his grace in what he's doing. He wants to make it a special thing, not just that I believe this, and I believe this to be true, more than facts, more than facts. I was never given the opportunity as a young person to actually acknowledge or receive the Holy Spirit in any sort of way whatsoever. And I believe I missed out because of that. If we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, we've come to believe in the Holy Spirit. So we're made aware when we come. We're brought to an awareness 
that God's Holy Spirit is involved. And so we could have a spiritless faith. And I find as I talk to people, that's what they've got. A spiritless faith. Believing, but there's no sense more than believing. So Paul reminds them, when you came, did you receive by the law? He's just taking them back to the beginning. And reminding them of the importance of the work, the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And this morning I would just flag that up with biblical authority and say, were you ever given any opportunity when you came to Jesus Christ to acknowledge the person and work of the Holy Spirit and to believe him to be the activity in your life? If you weren't, then maybe we just have the opportunity at the end. I think three people in the history of Beacon Church have come forward at times like that and said, I never had that opportunity to receive, to say yes to the Holy Spirit. I've said yes to Jesus, but he's part of the package. He can't be detached from what we receive. A spiritless faith of sorts. A God who is somewhere with a son who is no one and a spirit who seems to be it, and I'm confused. Little definition. So we're introduced to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So then as a natural progression, it must follow that we receive him as an inclusive part of this package. Paul's referring here to the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a gift which maybe we haven't received yet. The gift of the Holy Spirit. He's there to be received and to be known. So living faith can be defined by an understanding and an awareness and an awakening in our being of the Holy Spirit and who he is and where he can take us from now, not just a simple faith. The Spirit will affect my whole life, not just simply my mind. Not faith, but living faith. It is he who winds up the clock. He fills up the tank. He throws the switch to make the electricity flow. That's the difference. A car without a tank full of fuel is useless. You remember the times when trains went from steam trains to electric trains. I just started work at the time. And I rushed out of there to watch the first electric train run through Sturry. Amazing sight it was. No puffing at the front. Train driver trying to keep the boiler going, to keep the power and the energy to the train going. That's a bit like life with the Jewish people under the old covenant. You had to work at it to get it go. You had to keep fueling it to make the thing run on two rails. And then the engineers came along and they put an electricity line along the side of it. So all the new trains had to do was plop down their connection point onto the electric rail and it gave the power to move. It's a little bit like our experience when we come to know Jesus Christ and to receive the Holy Spirit of God. It's that point of connection with all that was past, even the two old rails that had run trains for many, many years. Historically, it was important the day the electric trains came on it and power was applied to them to give them life. It's just an analogy. It's just a metaphor 
of explanation. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? We could, it's like an airbed, really. We could just live our Christian life trying to pump up the airbed. You ever been on a campsite? The airbed won't go up, or you can't find a pump at all to pump the jolly thing up. You know? Is our Christian life, our faith like that? Keep having to pump it up? You know? Keep winding up the clock? No. God intended us to have a faith with a definition, with a hope goes beyond the grave, gives us joy and peace and definition to life. So the Holy Spirit is the first characteristic of a living faith for us. The second one is baptism. These aren't in this passage, but I just want to move on because this is what Paul's talking about. And I find that people have not come to this. Baptism, what is this and do I need it? At our prayer breakfast yesterday morning, Father Mark from the Catholic Church was, um, was saying to us, he said, I had someone phone me up in the week and he said, how much does baptism cost? And he said, I just had to stop for a minute. I had to be quiet for a moment. He said, I nearly said, it'll cost you your life. It'll cost you your life. And it does cost people their lives in other parts of the world today. They choose to follow Jesus Christ. And it means death for them. Literal physical death. Because they've chosen to follow him. Baptism and communion are two ordinances of the, of the church. We believe that to be right, communion and baptism. Something we do because we believe what we do. We could be baptised and just because it's in the Bible. But the Bible talks about people, when they believed, they were baptised. She wanted to make an identity, identity with Jesus Christ. And that's important too, isn't it? John, was, John and I were walking around New Romney on, on, on Friday. And John said to me, what are people trying to identify themselves with all these tattoos, he said. We, thought we saw this guy with his tattoos from head to tail. He said, what are they trying to identify with? I said, I don't know, John. I've no idea. But... Uh, it's like that, isn't it? You know? And then we was, as we were driving around Hythe, all around Hythe there was these little jeeps running around with flags on them, people running around, some dressed up as military people. So there's a war going on or something here. We were driving round and round and round, so many of them. Hythe was flooded with these jeeps and people sitting in them and driving around. What's going on? And then we realised there was a war and peace show going on. You know? Identity. What are we identifying with? And people identify with all sorts of things. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. But in the context of gospel, how and what are we doing to identify with Jesus? Baptism was a way of doing that. It was the way of, like Steve was saying, talking about the marriage. Do you take this woman or man to be your lawful wedded husband or wife? 
I do. I do. It's a point of identity. And in its simplest form, it's an identity with Jesus Christ and his, with his burial and his resurrection. Going down in the water simplifies, uh, signifies a burial of, t- of sorts, you know. It's a picture form. The nearest we can get to saying, I want to die with Christ. But coming up out of the water speaks of the resurrection. Yeah? It's symbolic. But we do it. We do it because we say... I want a clear definition to this faith of mine. I want to give it what it's worth. I want to give him what he's worth because I want to identify with Jesus Christ. Faith or living faith? Baptism. The last one I want to come to, and you might wonder why I've gone to this. What gives Christianity or faith a clear definition and brings life to me. Creation. My belief in creation. The Bible begins with one verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you take that verse away, which is what's happening today in many places, you might as well rip the rest of it out of the Bible And you're left with two covers and nothing in between. Because the whole historical evidence of the Bible actually revolves around the fact that in the beginning, God created in heaven and sand. You might be saying to me, you're ignorant, you don't believe. You're not believing what the scientists say. No, there probably is an element of that. But based on biblical truth and what I'm going to say in a moment, I believe it to be such an important issue that it could take us down the wrong road and take away all that we ever know in Jesus Christ. It can rob us of the definition of our faith. Creation. You say, why do you say that? But if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to Hebrews 11, the writer here would connect faith with creation in no uncertain terms. Hebrews 11, verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That applies to the scientific world as well as anything else. They can't be certain of what they can't see. If you read on, This is what the ancients were commended for. That's people like Fred and me and... Uh, <laughs> It's what the ancients were commended for. Yes, that's right. By faith we understand, this is important, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You say that verse is bonkers. It may be. But it's true. The world was framed, was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That was in the context of faith. In the context of faith. Now if you turn over to Romans 1... 
verse 28. Romans 1, verse 28. <coughs> Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God... He gave them over to depraved mind to do what they ought not to have done. And that refers to all kinds of, of wicked and sexual immorality and all sorts of things like that. God gave them over to. God gave them over to because that's what they wanted. Okay? That's what they wanted. Now, if you go back and look at verse 19... Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood, underline that, being understood from what has been made in creation so that men are without any excuse. I just want to underline without excuse. What does that mean? There is legitimate evidence that becomes an accusation against you. Legitimate evidence against you without excuse. What else does it say? God has good reasons to accuse. He has an open door on our life. You know? That's quite a serious place to be, isn't it? Without excuse. Not only that, if you take the courtroom situation, it means that you know, have no evidence in your defence. You have no evidence in your defence against the holy God. So I believe these are three important things that actually give a clear definition between faith and living faith. The Holy Spirit... Baptism, as I identify with Jesus Christ, and my belief in creation. It's so important, because Paul starts off, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? And I want to leave you that question this morning. If you can't find within you to believe in creation, and you tend to believe an alternative I just want to ask, leave that question with you this morning. Who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Who's taken away the simplicity? Who's taken away and given you something else? I don't know. We're going to pray with Janet. He's going in for an operation to have reversal of 
this, which you've been wanting for a long time. So if you want to come up, Janet, I'm also going to give you the opportunity to come. Julian, could you get Steve, and we're going to have a song just for a moment. No time's gone, but these times are important.